Science is a lot about creativity. And so it's a really good idea for scientific people to kind of have something in their life that encourages their creativity as well as their technical ability. So have an outside interest. And the two things cross fertilize, I think. If you keep your mind nimble by thinking about creative stuff, then it helps with problem solving in science too. Welcome to Beyond the Bench, the podcast where we delve into stories of scientists and their work. I'm your host, Madison Sankovitz, and I'm an entomology PhD candidate at University of California, Riverside. And today, co-hosting with me, I have Dr. Monique Rivera, an extension specialist here in the entomology department as well. Today, we're talking with Dr. Neil McRoberts, a professor of plant pathology at UC Davis. So Neil, your lab focuses on quantitative biology and epidemiology. So give us an overview of how you study plant pathology at the intersection of these fields. Okay. Um... So I discovered, and we can loop back to this. Um, yeah, sort of. A, I dis- a, discovered a while I was doing my PhD um, in plant pathology, which was for the late 1980s, uh, a pretty typical lab-based PhD in plant pathology, um, that I was really not any good at lab work. Um, I, and I'd wanted to be a plant pathologist since I was 15. Um, and again, we can, we can find out later why that was. Um, and so I was, I was literally, um, living my dream, but I discovered that I really didn't have an aptitude for lab work. And, um, also my, um, PhD wasn't the experiments that I designed weren't very, uh, they weren't very good, to be perfectly honest. They weren't big enough. They weren't. They weren't. They, they, I now know that what I should say is they didn't have enough statistical power to resolve the questions that I was asking. But at that time, basically, there weren't enough replicates of things to 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 unravel the questions I was interested in. So as it got towards the end of the project, I was faced with the problem of having a ton of data, and every time we kind of fed it through the sort of analysis of variance machinery, um, I was getting a lot of um, marginal and non-significant results and, you know, starting to panic about having anything, you know, significant in inverted commas to say. And my supervisor, who was, I, I was his last PhD student, so he had a lot of wisdom stored up and he said, well, I don't know how to do this, but I think you probably should go to the statistics training people and get trained in how to do multivariate statistics because I've heard from people that um, if you've got kind of patterns in your data but there it's difficult to pull them out that some of those methods can help so I've heard but you know I don't know for certain I've never tried it so um, he sent me off to be trained and we were lucky in Edinburgh we had a, a um, a statistics training service that was paid for by a government program. Um, so I was lucky to learn multivariate statistics. And up to that point, I had been like most biology students. I hated the idea of anything quantitative. I didn't want to have anything to do with statistics or mathematics. But the necessity of trying to save my PhD combined with a completely different way of 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 thinking about statistics, where there were no hypotheses, you were just looking to see if you could reveal the pattern, completely changed my uh, perspective. So I, I kind of it opened the door to me to quantitative analyses and gave me a lot more confidence. And then when I went from there to my first uh, junior faculty position, I was handed a, a survey pro- program to, to look after, a, a multidisciplinary survey program to look after, where again, we were looking for pattern, but now at a national scale, instead of me looking at the growth of a particular fungus on leaves, but the same methodology, the same statistical methodology for pattern recognition was applicable there. And I kind of 
that opened another door because I realized you could study phenomena at different scales using the same analytical approaches that they, you know, they applied at different scales. And in that survey program, in addition to looking at all of the pests and weeds and diseases that occurred in different regions of the country, we, were, we also asked the farmers who were growing the crops what they did. And I ran headlong into this really interesting phenomenon, which was that the pests and weeds and diseases had a kind of regional character to them, you know, based on rainfall and temperature and things. You know, you could, you could cluster fields in one area of the country based on the profile of problems they had. But when you looked at the growers' data in response to the questionnaires, what did you do this year? There wasn't a regional structure to what the growers were doing. And that really kind of made me think, well, wait a minute. Um, if they're following best practice or if they're being given advice by the advisory service and, and they don't have a regional pattern that in their behavior that matches the pest regional pattern, some of them must be getting it wrong, right? And some of them must be getting it right. And it really, it really confronted me with the, the, the human aspect to epidemiology, the, the idea that we give people advice on the understanding that they're going to try and intervene and manage the system. And sometimes they do what we suggest and sometimes they don't do what we suggest. And depending on how many of them do and don't do what we suggest, you get a different outcome at a national or regional scale. So this whole kind of idea that the human element of epidemiology was really important kind of hit me in the face right on my first project straight out of my PhD. And so I've kind of tried to pursue that ever since. And um, it took me about 25 years, I think, to really put together a, a toolkit of approaches and ideas um, that that I'm now putting into practice in Davis. So the first half of my career, I was still learning how to do what I do. And now I think I've kind of got some ability, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm still learning. I'm still still looking for new ideas all the time. So it sounds like you're basically saying you really need to interface with communities in order to optimize what you're doing. Um, Am I getting that correctly? Communities of growers or communities of scientists or who are your communities? Both, I think, right? Both. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of solving problems, I need to interact with the people who I'm trying to help. And in terms of learning how to help them, I need to interact with the people who know or who might have the answers that I can steal or adapt. Or from reading what other people have tried and it hasn't worked, I can try and think of how to do a better job than they did. But it's all about, yeah, it is actually all about interacting with people one way or another. So you've been at this for a while. What, what have been some of your favorite projects? I, I know you've worked kind of all over the place that you've used these tools to approach problems and hopefully had some success. Well, I think that original um, survey program that I um led in Scotland was was still in my I still go back to it as as a huge learning experience um, and then I think the other thing that I did while I was still based in the UK that I really enjoy although almost none of it um, was published um, was work that I did where I was invited to join a project working on a soilborne pathogen sclerotinia which is quite ubiquitous it turns up on a lot of different crops and I had an, a real um, loathing of the whole idea of working on anything soilborne because it's just, you know, a grind. At least that's what I thought. You know, it's boring. It's a grind. You can't see what you're trying to work on half the time. You know, they live in the muck. Um, in Scotland, that means they're probably underwater half the year. It's cold and horrible and miserable. Um, but I, I didn't have a lot of other stuff to do at that point. So I said yes uh, to, to working on this this fungus. And of course... Within six months of starting to work on it, I was completely captivated by um, by the whole idea of working on it, and I'd, I'd, I'd 
come to be fascinated by the life cycle of the organism. And the reason why I, I'm grateful that I said yes to that project was really for two reasons. Um, it gave me the, 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 the big survey project was, was great, but it wasn't really an extension project. It was a, it was a research project that was field-based. But a lot of the work on sclerotinia, um, I actually, you know, I did the scouting myself. I went out to the field. I drove, you know, for an hour and a half once a week in the season and went to the carrot fields. I was working in carrots on that project and walked up and down and counted things. And, and it really reconnected me with the field. And, 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 uh, and the other thing it did was um, sharpen for me the the way in which biology is a mixture of rules you know set by the life cycle of the organism so you can write down the life cycle of any organism as a set of rules you know you know like an insect you have eggs you have you know nymphs and larvae and then adults and then more eggs again so those are kind of rules so biology is basically a mixture of rules and noise and and trying to model the life cycle of sclerotinia um really gave me an appreciation of of the importance that any that any life cycle it's it's really the balance between the noise and the rules that that determine what you see and sclerotinia was was really rule driven and other things i've worked on have been really noise driven and if you start your career in biology um with everything nailed down and under control um in the lab somewhere you get the wrong impression. You think, oh, biology is all about rules and there's no noise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the time what, what happens in the world that's important is a mixture of those two things. And quite often the way to, quite often the difficult piece in solving the problem is working out the balance between when the rules are important and when the noise is important. Which is what's so horrible about HLB, actually preempting maybe some questions that will come later <laughs> particularly in california we're having a really hard time working out the the ratio of rules to noise mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so hlb um maybe just give a brief overview of what that is listeners of our podcast will probably be familiar with it because we've been interviewing some other scientists who are part of the science for citrus health world mm-hmm. but yeah just give a brief overview of what that is Okay, so HLB, the three letters HLB, um, is uh, an acronym for the disease Huanglongbing, which is a Chinese word, um, which I think uh, means yellow dragon and refers to the appearance of shoots on citrus trees sometimes, sometimes when they're infected by, with a, a fastidious bacterium called Libirobacter that um, can infect trees and is, in, is vectored around, carried around in the environment by um, a couple of different species of psyllid. Uh, and the one that is probably most destructive and most invasive globally is the Asian citrus psyllid, which is the one that has turned up in the Americas. And it carries uh, Libirobacter asiaticus, which is the most um, problematic of the bacteria that cause citrus greening-like symptoms around the world. Um, so we have an invasive insect um, that has a very high fecundity under ideal conditions. And the bacterium, which probably started its evolutionary journey as a gut bacterium of the insect, but sometime in the fairly recent past has learned the trick of host jumping into the trees as well. So now you have a problem that the trees have no co-evolutionary history to speak of with the bacterium. So um, particularly cultivated citrus varieties don't really have very good, if any, tolerance or resistance to the presence of the bacterium. And, and under ideal conditions for reproduction of the psyllid, um, the bacterium can spread very rapidly through citrus plantains and has caused devastation in Florida in particular, but other areas of the citrus producing world as well. And it has arrived in California. We've, we've, we've had the psyllids since uh, 2008 or nine 
we've had known cases of HLB since 2012, although it was probably here for a while before we found it. But the interesting thing about California is that um, it's really the first time this whole pathogen vector system has invaded a, a Mediterranean climate with a significant citrus industry. And California being California, the industry um, has has taken action to try and stop the spread of the disease in a much more coordinated and wholehearted way than anyone's tried anywhere else. And so the disease is actually progressing pretty slowly here compared with elsewhere. But it's real life, right? It's not an experiment. So everything's confounded. So it's progressing pretty slowly. It's still a massive threat to the industry and they're spending a huge amount of money every year to control it. But we can't tell if it's spreading slowly because of what they're doing or because of the Mediterranean climate or a bit of both. Um, and so it comes back again to sort of signals and noise and trying to work out how much of the rate of spread we can attribute to um, them spending a lot of money every year and uh, also um, the climate not being ideal for ACP, for the Asian citrus psyllid. So you've played a really huge role in California's way of approaching this whole situation. And and how has that been interfacing? Because I, I know uh, that it's multiple levels and, um, you know, you've been involved with this really since the beginning, right? I think saying a really huge role is probably overstating um, it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I first got involved in 2012. Um, the, the, the USDA National Plant Pathology Lead for Citrus Health, uh, Tim Gottwald, Dr. Tim Gottwald, who's an old friend who I knew before I, I moved to Davis, um, asked me to, to get involved because he was based in, in Fort Pierce in Florida and he needed uh, a colleague on the West Coast who could help him with his national responsibility and he sometimes had I guess had communication issues with the, the industry on this side of the country so he asked me to to, to help him by getting involved um, and um, so I contacted the citrus research board and, and asked you know how that the best way to do that and and the manager of the citrus research board at the time said well the best way to find out what's happening is to come to the committee meetings of the grower committee that is tasked with trying to organize the the response so come and sit in and you'll hear what's going on and you'll have an idea of who the important people are and what kinds of problems they're facing so so i did that and then the meetings were of course as they are open to the public um and i guess me being me you know i had an opinion about things <laughs> so um i started speaking up and making comments and saying, well, you know, maybe we could help with that. Um, maybe, maybe if you could give us the data from the survey program, we could reanalyze it and maybe we could answer that question for you instead of you having to guess, we could come up with some answers for you. And that kind of informally went on for four or five years. And then um, one or two of the growers, the influential growers, said, look, we need to formalize this process and create a, a, a formal process whereby we can make use of the science that Neil's team is offering on a more, um, in a more structured way. And so we formed a, a, a named entity that's a collaboration between the UC and the Citrus Research Board, and it's funded by the program. And basically, um, we... we organize scientists to give their time for free, which they do remarkably enough, to analyze questions that the program has. And so I, I think the one, one thing that definitely is different about the way that California is handling this is that the committee has been, um, has had science available to them um, for a very long time. And so they've got used to the idea of making decisions based on advice and evidence. And now they tend to, to, to do that when they want to make a difficult decision. They'll stop and say, okay, what does the science say? Um, 
and even I mean they don't always necessarily take our recommendations, but they but they at least ask and chew over the answer um, before they before they jump, which I suppose is is something of an achievement. And there's been a couple of significant things they've done that that we suggested that I think have helped to slow things down, like the regulation to tarp the trucks was really built on the back of work that we did analyzing the trapping of psyllids up and down the state and uh, dividing the state into quarantine areas and things like that are, are all things that they did based on scientific input. So what was the genesis of the tarping? So for listeners that don't know, um, this was a regulatory change that happened in California. So in order to move fruit, the growers must uh, put a tarp over the bins of the harvested fruit. So if there are ACP or Asian citrus psyllid on the fruit, they're not being transported across the state to the packing houses. So was that based on other work from another region or is that kind of a standard um, epidemiological approach to limiting the spread? No, that was actually based on um, observations that were made in Florida. Um, so um when fruits moved in Florida to go from orchards to juicing plants, it's moved in big um, wire-sided bulk trailers. And uh, Susan Halbert, who's a scientist, I think worked for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, maybe for APHIS, she actually, um, and with some colleagues, made some observational studies of truckloads of fruit that were being moved around Florida um, and did some DVAC sampling on the backs of those trucks and actually showed that the, the fruit loads were, were, you know, pretty covered in psyllids, actually. And when they looked at where psyllids were being found, they saw this connection with transport corridors. And then Dr. Gottwald's team at Fort Pierce um, took the same idea and they actually studied the data in more detail and they came up with a dispersal curve that kind of, shows quantitatively how far from each side of the highway you're likely to find psyllids, you know, with distance. And what all that we did was, was take the curve from Dr. Gottwald's analysis and overlay it on the California highway system map in a GIS and then show in the Central Valley in particular how many of the detections of individual psyllids that they were seeing lay in the risk zone on either side of the major transport corridors up and down the valley. And so by showing that the risk area that had been calculated in Florida touched most of the places where they were finding psyllids along the highway, we kind of led them to conclude that um, what was happening was that trucks were moving psyllids from Southern California up into the valley. And we wrote a briefing paper that was um, used to introduce the regulation change that Monique mentioned. And since then, the, the, the detections have dropped off um, massively in the Central Valley. We can't, you know, it's not possible to causally say that the tarpon was responsible for it, but it's a massive coincidence that, it, that the two things coincide. And we just, in the last two or three months, reanalyzed all the data and, and there's a Citrograph article coming out to demonstrate that um, the rate of detection has dropped uh, significantly since they, they uh, um, implemented the tarpon regulation. Um, so it, you know, we, we think that that's been a successful piece of advice basically. But we're always, I mean, it seems like everything we recommend introduces costs, right? Everything we do comes with a cost. And so you're always conscious that you're asking, you're always asking the industry to pay up front more and more and more to sort of solve a problem that they are not seeing progress very rapidly. And, you know, so it's only natural that they, they question the, the, the value of doing more and more work but we keep suggesting things. So I'm not a plant pathologist. Madison's not a plant pathologist. Is this a really common approach or sector of study in that field? And a, a second part to that question would be, you know, you went from, 
you know, you mentioned that you had wanted to be a plant pathologist since 15 and then doing a PhD. Uh, do you think that route is more direct now than it was then? Or how does this fit in the world of plant pathology? I mean, this doesn't, this isn't how I was familiarized with plant pathology at all. Um, that's, it's a really difficult question to answer. I mean, it's not very uncommon for epidemiologists to interact quite directly with stakeholders, for want of a better word. You know, I mean, so there's quite a lot of parallels in the plant pathology world with the human health world. And you can see with the COVID epidemic how much um, some decision makers have called on epidemiologists to help them. And that hasn't always been successful, right? Some of the models that were used early on were not that great, to be honest. So it's not uncommon in the epidemiology world in plant pathology for people to do similar things to what I do. Um, but like a lot of other scientific disciplines, and you know, this is something I think, you know, plant pathology is a much more diverse subject than it was when I started out as a plant pathologist. And so it's really rare to find anybody who can cover it all right now. Um, and I think the emphasis has been in the last 20 years has been um, on fundamental mechanisms, you know, molecular biology, um, unraveling how pathogens and plants interact at a fundamental level. And it would be, and it's not a very typical, it's, it wouldn't be a typical career path for somebody to study that stuff and then end up doing what I'm doing. Um, so actually, I don't get a lot of, um, the, the pool of people who want to come and work with me isn't that big. I don't get, I don't, I'm not inundated with people who want to do what I do, to be honest. <laughs> Going back to your childhood, how did you first get interested in plant pathology or science in general? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so where um, are you from originally? Okay. You know what? I'm going to, if you don't, uh, can I show, show you my screen? Yes, please. Okay. Because I'm going to, I might as well um, show you the slides that I, okay, so um, this black and white photograph here, this is the, this is the street I grew up in uh, wow. until I was nine years old. I lived in, in this house up on the, up on, it's a different house below up here. Okay. The cars were, these are not 1970s cars. Okay. <laughs> so it looked like this, but the cars were a little bit different. Okay, this is in the east and on the east side of Scotland. So I grew up here and over the back fence, there was a field, a uh, farmer's field. And when I was a kid, this, this, what looks like a footpath here, went to a farm um, that was like the outer edge of my universe. Um, and that uh, bridge actually carries the railway line that um, took people either north to Dundee or south to Edinburgh. And at that, this is, so this is the station that's not far away from there. And this is what the trains looked like. And I spent a lot of time as a, as a little kid being a dreamer, like watching trains come and go. Um, I'll, I'll skip the trucks. So I said there was some early influences and one of them was this television program that was on um, British television for kids twice a week, um, late in the afternoon. It was a magazine program filmed live, three presenters, um, you know, they had lots of pets and they made stuff and they went on adventures and they did stuff. And every year they had a charity appeal um, for the kids to send in like old clothes or blankets or, you know, cutlery or whatever. And they gathered it all together and they, they sold it off and they raised money. And it seemed like every year that what they did with the money was buy aid stuff that was ended up in Africa. This is, this, this is Valerie Singleton, who was the presenter, and that's her there. And that's Princess Anne. So they quite often roped in a member of the royal family to help with the charity stuff. And they would go off and then help the people who needed the help. And that kind of idea that you, you know, that there were people who needed help was like an early thing, influence. I had a couple of fantastic schools. That's the, what we call the primary, the elementary school in the village. Um, and that's the high school I went to. And they were both really, really, really good schools. Um, uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of that, um, I think, just that really great education. And when I was 15 years old, 
and starting to study for like the first set of exams that really matter in your life. In biology class, when we got to the bit of the syllabus where the teacher was supposed to tell us about fungi, um, he did something a bit different. Um, he had been a plant pathology PhD student himself and decided when he finished his PhD that he didn't want to go into research, he wanted to become a teacher. So he went to teacher training school and became a teacher. And when he got to the bit of the syllabus to teach us about fungi in the first class, he went to a field on the outskirts of town, found some barley and made some epidermal peels of barley leaves and showed us down the microscope, powdery mildew hostoria in the leaf feeding on from the barley cells. And I was, that was it. I was absolutely captivated by the idea that there was this microscopic world with these weird organisms that, that could do this stuff. So I stayed behind after class and said, hey, Mr. Sati, how do I, how do I become somebody who studies that stuff? What is that? How do you do that? And because he had done it, he could tell me what to do. So he basically said, well, what you want to do is become a plant pathologist. <laughs> and they get trained um, in agriculture schools. And so if you want to study you know, reasonably locally, then the places to go are either Edinburgh or Aberdeen. And I would go to Edinburgh because it's better than Aberdeen and it's the capital and stuff. So he basically mentored me and, and set me on my way. And so that was how I became a plant pathologist. It was because my high school biology teacher had been one and knew how to get kids um, interested in a subject. But he was also a really caring, um, really wonderful teacher. And he, he, he treated us like we were um, grown-ups, like we were human beings, and um, really encouraged us to, um, to study and, and follow what we were interested in. Um, and the school system then was not, the, and there at that, at that time, was not about spoon feeding kids. You know, you had to, even at that early age, you had to kind of discover stuff for yourself. Um, so that idea that you had to take responsibility for your own learning was, was something that was built in really early on. So, so I went to Edinburgh. I studied Alternaria on for my PhD. So these are actual plates from my PhD thesis, just to prove that I did actually like spend hundreds of hours looking down the microscope, <laughs> counting spores and looking at how they behaved and measuring stuff. Um, and and then wrote one paper with multivariate statistics that saved me, as I said. And and this is actually the this figure we're looking at now this is the this is the, the set of data that that made me interested in in people that's so cool um and but you can see um i think it says yeah pwd so pest weeds and diseases so even though i trained as a plant pathologist in my first job i was looking at um pests and weeds and diseases I was in a plant science department, not a plant pathology department. So I had, um, I never really got the chance to just become in a rut on, on plant pathology. I feel like I always had to consider more things. And my boss was a weed scientist and he, who was kind of pretending to be a plant pathologist sometimes. And he really got me interested in working on, on weeds, which is how I ended up spending some time in, in, uh, on a project that meant I had to go to India uh, once a year for three or four years, actually to work on weed, on a weed, Phalaris minor. Um, so I had this really diverse training, really. And the other thing that I think is, looking back now, was really fortunate, but at the time sometimes bothered me was, so I was working at this, I'd finished my PhD in Edinburgh and moved before I'd even written it up, which I would never recommend anybody to do. Okay, so I left Edinburgh with all my data in boxes, no thesis, and went and started my first job as a, as a junior professor, um, a lecturer, trying to write my thesis in the evening. And, um, but the thing is that that campus was really a backwater. It was really a low, um, it didn't have a high rating in 
research. It didn't have a high profile in extension. It was a real, um, it focused on education. It focused on two-year degrees for um, people who were studying horticulture. And so I had a lot of freedom because expectations were low. You know, there wasn't a lot of expectation in terms of papers and grants and all the rest of it. So I had a massive amount of freedom to keep learning, basically, to keep reading stuff and exploring and trying to find my feet and work out who I was and what I wanted to be. And, and I think that that was a really, really valuable experience. But I mean, it's, it's, I mean, imagine giving people that as advice if they say, I, I want to be a scientist, what should I do? Yeah, go and spend the first 10 years of your career in a really low impact backwater institute because um, <laughs> nobody will care whether you um how much time you put into grant writing and paper writing but you'll be able to learn a whole load of stuff yeah yeah i mean that's i think is sort of the ironic part about um this pandemic too it's like you know people all of a sudden have like a different kind of time that they didn't have before that i think mm. people are using to learn new things about themselves or about the world um yeah those of us who are fortunate enough to have that extra time so you mentioned the Indian rice wheat system, and then you also mentioned um, that influence of sort of the ability to help other people in other parts of the world. Um, what projects have you done in what parts of the world? So we worked on this wheat problem in, in northern India, in mm -hmm. uh, Haryana and the Punjab. Um, and then... Yeah. So then at that, at that time in when I was working at that college, I met this guy who I'm showing people the slide now. And this is uh, this photograph here is uh, Serge Savary. And Serge at that time was uh, an international scientist at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines. And when I'd been a PhD student in Edinburgh, we were encouraged to read as many different journals that were in the library as possible. And I used to love reading agricultural systems because I used to try and love trying to understand all the economics papers that are in there. And usually I didn't, but, um, and so one day I came across, I went to the library and, you know, back in the good old days, the shelves at the front of the library had the latest edition of each of the journals that the library subscribed to. And I opened agricultural systems and there was this weird paper um, by this French guy that I'd never heard of looking at, um, cropping systems for rice in the Philippines and in a way almost mirroring the project that we were doing the survey project that we were doing and it was like hey look there's some other crazy person who tries to include human behavior in complex analyses of, of plant pest weeds and disease problems and again it's one of these really weird coincidence things somebody else had read this paper and invited Serge to come to the UK when he was on home leave in France from the Philippines to present the keynote paper at the British Society for Plant Pathology Conference. So I got the chance to introduce myself and say hello and how much I'd enjoyed reading his paper. And we became friends and we've stayed friends ever since. And so through Serge's connections with international agriculture, um, I've been able to work on, on you know, issues with about global food security and rice in particular, without actually going um, very many times to to see those or work in those countries. But I've worked in the Philippines a little tiny bit with Serge. Um, and then while I've been in Davis, I've also worked on um, cocoa in Malaysia um, through a, a Borlaug fellowship that um, a Malaysian scientist won and was looking for an institute in Davis where he could learn about decision-making and, and prediction. And somebody suggested he, he contact me and he came and worked in Davis for three months. And then I, I went to see his experiments in Borneo um, on uh, smallholder cocoa production. But again, it was a pest problem. It wasn't a disease problem. It was uh, um, pod borer, pod midge which actually is no pod borer, which is a moth, I gather. Um, uh, and in a similar way, one of my old master's students from Edinburgh who um, ended up at Imperial College in London working on um, the links between economics and plant diseases 
contacted me to say, could I help him with a project in Uganda on smallholder coffee production? So I got involved in in working on smallholder coffee production uh, with for Robusta coffee in Uganda. Um, and again, we thought it was going to be a plant disease epidemiology project. We had heard that coffee was suffering from this uh, coffee wilt problem. But by the time we got organized to go to Uganda and actually do the field work, the epidemic had ripped through the coffee acreage and um, what was still standing and still productive was not suffering from coffee wilt. It was actually, they were ne- they, by that time, they were then dealing with an infestation of black twig border. And so again, we ended up working on a pest problem instead of a disease problem because basically we got there after the disease problem had already left. So we ended up working on, on uh, black twig border instead of on fusarium. But, you know, they're all problems and it's all interesting stuff. So, I, I mean, I don't really care what's killing your plants. I'm, I'm, quite, I'm you know, I'm... <laughs> You'll be there. <laughs> I'll be there, you know. All about it. <laughs> if it's interesting and I can count stuff, I'll be there. It's okay. So what you're really saying is you're like one third entomologist. Uh, you know, I think it's I think it's the infection's gone deeper than that now. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. We're always glad to hear when people are coming. <laughs> well, because when I moved to California in 2010, so there's basically no insects in Scotland. It's too cold and too wet. You know, there's occasionally we see some aphids, um, and the potato growers get a little bit worried about viruses, um, but that's about it. So vector diseases are not a thing, and of course I came to California and. It's all about vector diseases. And so I've, um, I think, pretty willingly actually adopted, adopted a whole load of vector diseases to work on because, you know, it introduces insects into the mix. And, you know, then you've got two loads of sentient beings, farmers and insects and plants as well. And it's just, it just makes it all lot, that much more interesting. <laughs> Um, how was that transition coming to the U.S. for the first time in terms of science and just in general, I guess? Um, so I, I kind of did it in stages, although I didn't know that I was doing it in stages. Uh, we moved in 2010, but from about 2006, I think, I started coming every summer to the APS, the American Phytopathology Society annual meeting. And it, of course, it moves around the country. Um, so I got to see different bits of the country from going to the annual meetings in the summer. And I also was invited to join the board of phytopathology as a senior editor at that time. And Bob Gilbertson from UC Davis was the editor in chief. So I struck up a friendship with Bob. And in 2003, four, uh, I did a month sabbatical in uh, Worcester, Ohio, with Larry Madden, uh, working on some theoretical stuff to do with disease measurement and epidemiology. So we'd spent a month in the winter in Ohio, um, a week in Geneva, various summer trips um, to uh, various cities, um, I interviewed for a job in Laramie at the University of Wyoming um, and declined it when they offered it. And then in 2009, interviewed in Davis and we moved in 2010. So I kind of eased into it a little bit, but it was still a massive um, shock, I guess, in some ways um, to move from a country where a warm summer day is uh, 68 degrees to to uh to davis um but i have to say i i'll take sampling uh processing tomato fields in fresno county and 105 degrees over sloshing up and down carrot fields in (laughs) in persia where the where the water is so deep in the wheelings between the carrot beds that it's coming over the top of your your welly boots it's uh, oh my god (laughs) yeah Quite discovered, strangely enough, that I quite like the heat. So it's, it's okay. It's been okay. That's awesome. So you had this teacher, which actually this is like a common theme in a lot of people we talk to. 
um, people who have really good teachers early on in their lives who make things interesting and really inspire someone to go into what their whole entire career ends up being, which is just amazing. Um, so I guess what advice would you have for students these days who are interested in these themes of plant pathology and who might want to go into this field or I guess any other uh, similar field, epidemiology, entomology, anything like that? What would be your number one advice that you would give to them? Try, try to work out what you're passionate about. So what really interests you? Um, and that, but bizarrely enough, I, you know, if I'd followed that, I mean, I, that's what I did. I tried to do that and it, and it sort of worked out, but, but so try and follow your passion, but at the same time, recognize that you might find out that actually it's not what you're really interested in after all, or like I did that actually you're no good at it. And so be flexible as well. Have a backup plan. Um, for something else that you might be able to do or keep your eye open for promising alternatives along the way. So it's like trying to find a combination of, of focus and determination, but flexibility and keeping the, the, yourself open to the possibility of changing your plans if mm -hmm. it seems like a good idea. Yeah, you know, yeah. What happened to me was that in the, time that I was an undergraduate student. So in the, in the, in the four years, basically that I was an undergraduate student, um, Welsh and McClelland, uh, discovered, well, basically PCR was invented and Welsh and McClelland in, um, discovered rapid primers and, um, the molecular biology revolution, which had been threatening in biology, for a decade burst open and everything. So everything went very, you know, cause you wanted to study plant pathogen interactions at a basic level. When I started as an undergraduate student, you looked down a microscope, you went to the cryo SEM lab and, and looked down a microscope and tried to see what was happening. And within four years, people were, you know, routinely cloning things and, and working out fundamental mechanisms and molecular biology really took off. And I discovered I had no aptitude or interest in molecular biology whatsoever. Um, you know, I will happily sit for hours and move numbers around in a spreadsheet or bang my head against the screen trying to code um, a model in R or something. And so you'd think that same ability to put up with mind crushing boredom <laughs> mean that I was really good at pipetting like micro pipetting the same thing a gajillion times. Um, but actually it's a different type of boredom. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, really, really not. And I'm very clumsy as well. And so I broke an awful lot of glassware. The technician was really happy in my department um, where I did my PhD, when I, when I got to the end of all my experiments and started writing up, Robert actually had a little mini party in, in, the, in the room that the technicians and the PhD students shared as their office. We had a little mini party with Jason. Oh my God. I'd finished in the lab and nothing was going to get broken. That's too funny. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I hear you with some of that though. It's like, you know, both things can be boring, but it's a different type of boredom. Huge respect for people that can do that stuff. I mean, I'm just, I'm daily in awe in the building in Davis, you know, the corridor that I share with some of the best people who do that stuff in our department are right there in the same corridor as me. And, uh, you know, speaking to their students and, and hanging out with them, I'm in awe of what they can do, but, um, yeah, and it's it's like less boredom and more exhaustion, I think, too, in my case. You know, it seems simple. You're just sitting there at a lab bench doing something with your fingers, but it's exhausting, like both for your eyes and your neck and your hand. And yeah, I don't know, it takes a lot more concentration than people think. Mm -hmm. um, 
But yeah, no, that's really good advice to be flexible in your career. And yeah, I just want to thank you so much for talking to us today, Neil. Your story is just really, really interesting. Um, And I loved hearing about your childhood and seeing those photos. And maybe we can get you to send those to us. And then whenever we publish the episode, we can put them on our social media so people can go and see where you grew up. Because that was just so cool. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, gl- I'm happy to speak to you. One last thing I would say that I discovered was pretty important um, yeah. was I I didn't know when I I mean I kind of I kind of um, knew when I was going to leave school and go to university that I was going to go off and be a plant pathologist. I was ninety nine point nine percent certain that I was going to do that, and in the system at the time back in Scotland, we were allowed to to, to make five choices for where we wanted to go to university on the form that we filled out you know there were five places you were only allowed to make five initial applications um so my first four were you know biology and agriculture in different Mm -hmm. places and i had a really 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 we had a brilliant english department uh, in the school i mean some of the most inspiring teachers that i would that taught me were in the english department and they, they were campaigning pretty hard to get me to go to university and study English, uh, which was actually my best subject, um, not biology. And so they, they, they talked me into making one of my five choices in English, <laughs> an English <laughs> department choice. And of course, you know, the department's going to look at that like four, four biology applications and they put us fifth. There's no way they were going to give me a place for that. <laughs> anyway, um, but, but, um, in addition to the advices, in addition to following your passion about the subject, science is a lot about creativity um, and people kind of downplay that a lot. You know, people talk about the sort of technical abilities and stuff and they leave out the whole problem solving creative side to it. Um, And so it's a really good idea for scientific people to kind of have something in their life that encourages their creativity as well as their technical ability. So have an outside interest um, as well. Something, I mean, get in touch with your creative side is an important way also of balancing the, the boredom and the tension and the strain of being a scientist is to, is to have a creative outlet too and the two things cross fertilize i think if you keep your mind nimble by thinking about creative stuff then it helps with problem solving in science too mm-hmm. yeah it's a really good point and i found that to be true throughout my phd too thank you again this is thank really you. wonderful yeah I enjoyed the chance to be interviewed thank you Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. Editing for this episode was done by me, Madison Sankovitz. Our logo was designed by Miwa Sharai. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SciComm UCR.